All right, tonight is 2 Samuel. If you'll take your Bible and open to 2 Samuel. Uh, We finished 1 Samuel. Now we're going to move into 2 Samuel, work our way through that book. Um, David is one of the most well-known and most beloved figures in the Bible. And uh, as I've shared uh, in the past, and no doubt, Lord willing, you'll hear again, uh, David uh, was the figure in the Bible that first captivated me. And it was First uh, and Second Samuel uh, were the first two books of the Bible I ever read, and I was just hooked, and I've loved the Bible ever since. So uh, just the way God worked through David is astounding. It's so instructive. It's so encouraging. And tonight what I want to do is just give you a flavor for the book of Second Samuel and give you an overview. And one of my hopes and desires is this will, this will incite with you, in you a, a desire for more, uh, that you'll want to come and want to invite people to come and want to be reading 2 Samuel, want to dig more deeply into what God did through David. And tonight is the beginning of that, 2 Samuel. Incidentally, my plan after this is to go to First and Second Chronicles, which essentially carry on the history of David's line. Uh, First and Second Chronicles don't focus on northern Israel. They just focus on David's line, and there's lots of kings and descendants of David that are incredibly instructive for us, but that'll be months and months down the road. Lord willing, tonight is Second Samuel. Uh, 2 Samuel divides pretty neatly when you read the book. Chapters 1 through 10 uh, talk about essentially good things, their, their victories, their triumphs. And then chapters 11 through 20 talk about bad things. And you see David's sin and the consequences for his sin and him living with it. And, and so there's this, this pretty strong dichotomy in the book. The first chapters focus on David's faithfulness and then essentially the second half of the book He is dealing with and bearing the consequences of his sin. And then the last four chapters of the book are kind of good and bad. Uh, You have chapter 22, which is this incredible song or psalm from David about the greatness of God. And then the way the book ends, it ends with another essentially story about David's sin and how he had to deal with the consequences of it. It really ends in an unusual fashion. But first tonight, let's look at the first 10 chapters and think about David's triumphs. To see David's triumphs. Chapter 1 is David hearing about the death of Saul. And of course, several times Saul tried to kill David and David would spare Saul's life. Saul is killed uh, in a battle and David hears about it. And at at the end of chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 27, by the way, if you have your Bible, we're just going to be working our way through. This first section, we're going to work our way through really each chapter, and I'm going to show you a few things from from each chapter to kind of give you a flavor for the book. Chapter 1 and verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Then pick it up in chapter 2 and verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, which, which is quite instructive. Here you find David seeking God. After the death of Saul... What does David do? He inquires of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Essentially, should I go back home? And the Lord said to him, go up. And then David seeks more information. But right there, you see David seeking the Lord and inquiring of God for direction. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker 
and weaker. So what you find there is David's strength and his influence is growing over this period of long and drawn out warfare before David becomes king. Go to chapter 5, David becomes king, and look at chapter 5 and verse 10. Chapter 5 and verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. There's the ultimate criteria. Uh, you, you saw this in 1 Samuel, whenever the, the person was recommending David to Saul. You remember Saul was tormented and needed help. And one of Saul's generals recommended him, David to him. And, and what, what he said about David was, the Lord is with him. That it was evident that God's hand of blessing was on David. Here the author of 2 Samuel explains the reason why David is growing greater and greater is because the Lord is with him, which is, which is always ultimately the question, is the Lord with us? If the Lord is with us, who can be against us? Look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. What happens very soon after that? Chapter 5 and verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Shall I not go up? Shall not I go up? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, verse 23, let me try that again. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Notice there in verse 24, who is going to go out and strike down the Philistines? It's the Lord. Verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. What you find there is David being granted victory from God. And David's faithful in his obedience to God. David does what God tells him to do, and God delivers the Philistines into David's hands. This, this is triumph after triumph. This is David waxing greater and greater. And David is going to bring Israel to the zenith of their power. Uh, essentially, after David, it's somewhat downhill, a little bit of ups and downs, some faithful kings, many unfaithful kings. It's kind of like a roller coaster. In David's reign, they are at the zenith of their power. And that's what you see building here in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel. And it's because the Lord is with him, he obeys the Lord. Chapter 6 is this famous story of David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. So, David has conquered Jerusalem, and now he wants to bring the ark, which was the place where God's presence was found, into the city. So we'll have a good time about talking about worship in that chapter when we look at it in depth. Then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the high points of the Old Testament. One of the high points of God revealing his plans in, in the Old Testament is 2 Samuel Seven. You know, God has plans, and God is doing things. And what God does throughout the Old Testament is he's revealing little bits, little by little, usually about the Messiah, usually about his plan to save and to, to deliver us from sin. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the big places where God reveals what he's going to do. This is called the Davidic Covenant. This is, in, in my view, this is one of the places in the Old Testament a person should have memorized. Christians need to know 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant. At the end of the sermon, I'll show you why. But let me just show you what happens in 2 Samuel 7 if you pick it up in verse 8. 2 Samuel verse, chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body I will establish his kingdom you shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now there's some of that that applies to Solomon. And how God uses Solomon to carry on David's line. But there's some of it that is, notice, eternal language the establishing of David's kingdom forever and we learn in the New Testament that is fulfilled in and through Christ but it begins here with this covenant with David that God lets David in on and, and the other people of God in on the fact that it's going to be a descendant of David that God is going to establish an eternal kingdom through chapter 8 David the man of war and his continued victories chapter 8 look at verse 6 then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went by the way interesting isn't it the, the you, you understand the nation and kingdom of Syria still exists and they're still at war with Israel to this day but under David's reign they were put in submission look at chapter 8 and verse 14 more of the same. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servant. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's essentially the theme of chapters 1 through 10. Uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10 you see David extending kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is, is, a, is a, essentially a descendant of Saul who had been hidden. Because in that day and time, in the ancient world, whenever a new king takes over, it was just a custom to, to eliminate and kill all the members of the previous king's house. When a new kingly line takes power in the ancient world, it was just the, 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 the going mode of the day to kill off everyone who belonged to the previous family in power so they could never threaten you again. You just kill them all. But David does not do that. David does not follow that depraved common practice because he was friends with Jonathan if you remember and and he made he made a covenant with Jonathan that he would extend kindness to Jonathan's descendants and that's what he does here it's just just an, an incredible story about his kindness to a previous descendant of a, of a true enemy and yet David demonstrates his loyalty then, then essentially in chapter 11 things turn 
So you're reading 2 Samuel 1 through 10, and you've got the Lord is with David, granting him victory, just unprecedented victories. And then it changes in chapter 11, and really the whole tone of the rest of the book changes. And it's because of David's sin. It's because of David's sin. So not only do we see David's triumphs in chapters 1 through 10, then you see David's trials brought upon himself because of his sin in chapters 11 through 20. And it starts with Bathsheba in chapter 11. In chapter 12, he is rebuked by God through the prophet. Look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little I would add to you as much more then look what he says in verse 9 why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight look at how he describes David's sin despising the word of the Lord then look what he says in verse 10 now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. See what he says? You've despised my word. You've hated me. Friends, this is where we need to view our sin for what it is. It is sin before God. He describes David's sin as, that, as hatred of God. And, and sadly, this sets the tone for the rest of the book. Look again at verse 10. Here are the consequence. In verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. That's, that's the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. David is going to be reaping the consequences of this sin. Now, there is grace, praise the Lord. There is, there is grace and, and mercy from God laced throughout these chapters. But by and large, this sentence is the theme of the rest of the book. The sword will never depart from your house and it begins with the death of this child in this very chapter 2nd Samuel chapter 12 uh, what you find in chapter 13 is one of David's sons rapes one of his daughters uh, then you find one of his sons kills one of one of the other sons then you find Absalom uh, essentially plots to take over the kingdom. That's in chapters 14 through 18. So David's own son plots to usurp him and, and does so. And essentially what God tells David is the consequence for his sin in chapter 12 takes place in these next chapters. Chapter 20 is the rebellion of, of Sheba, these other people. But essentially what you find here is what you find all through the Bible. You consider Abraham you consider Moses, you consider David, and those are essentially the big three in the Old Testament. The big three figures in the Old Testament that God works through. Abraham, Moses, and David. All of them, all of them, the Bible portrays their sins and depicts their sins and describes in detail their sins. And, and what you see in Abraham, Moses, and what we're going to see in David in 2 Samuel is there are highs of faithfulness and then there are lows of consequences for sin. And you'll find it in all three of those cases. This is one of the, one of the things about the nature of the Bible that makes it unlike other books from the ancient world. Is it portrays in, in, in detail, sometimes graphic detail, 
depicts the sins of heroes, not really even the right word, the figures that it's talking about. Because ultimately the Bible is not about David or Moses or Abraham, it's about God and how God is going to use these very flawed people to bring about his plans. And again, it's unlike the recording of ancient history. So, so right now I'm teaching Gideon the history of ancient Greece, which is probably my favorite period of history to teach for a few reasons that I won't go into and bore you to death. But if you read ancient Greek history, I mean, it's just all about heroes and how powerful they are and how great they are and how strong they are and all their exploits and all the ways they conquer people. And, and yeah, many of them are tragic heroes, but that's not the focus. You come away thinking, wow, Achilles is a total stud. Or if you read Caesar's Gaelic Wars, you read about Caesar, incidentally written by Caesar himself. He's not, Caesar is not going to describe his flaws. He's only going to talk about how great he is and how great Rome is. And it's just essentially like propaganda. That's not the case with the Bible. The Bible clearly depicts the sinfulness of those that you find on its pages. Well, just a few other lessons about David. If you go back to chapter 7, the Davidic Covenant. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic Covenant. Again, probably one of the, the ten most important chapters in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God says he's going to do these amazing things for David. Look at David's reply in verse 18. This is 2 Samuel 7, 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Remember, God just said, You know, David, I took you from the pasture. I brought you out. I'm the one who delivered you from Saul. And you know what? I'm going to make your house a sure house. In fact, your throne and your kingdom is going to be established forever. You're going to have a descendant that will always be ruling on the throne. And what is David's response to that? Who am I? Totally viewing himself as undeserving. So what we can learn here is learning from David's character. We, we see here his humility. And again, this is, this is one of the keys to his greatness. It's his humility and his faith. Because the, 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 the frank reality of it is there is no true faith without humility. Because faith by its definition is, is utter and total dependence on another. That's what makes David a great warrior. Is his dependence is on God. That's what characterizes his faith. And it's fueled by his humility. Not thinking highly of himself, but thinking highly of God. Who am I? He's not entitled. He doesn't think highly of himself. And he recognizes that God is the one who's brought him thus far. Look at that at the end of verse 18. That you have brought me thus far. I mean, is that how we view our life? And the, the blessings that we enjoy and the good things that have happened to us, that God has brought us thus far? So it's been God's doing? He's incredibly, incredibly humble. Look what he goes on to say in verse 19. Yet this was... A small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord God. Look at how big of a view of God David has. You using me was a, a small thing. You have spoken also by your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O oh Lord God. There is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is, 
like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation, and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became your God. You know what that language shows you? He's talking about God and what God has done. This is what David's captivated by. David's not captivated by his abilities or his skills or his diplomacy or his leadership abilities. He's captivated by God. And this, is, this again, is one of the great lessons you learn about David. He's a great worshiper. He's a great worshiper. Look at what he says there. Verse 22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God. That God did all this and brought David this far is not about David's greatness. It doesn't exalt David. This is why a, a reading and a study of David that exalts David is a misunderstanding. It needs to do what David does and exalt God. God is the reason David is who he is. David, God is the reason David is where he is. God is the reason for the Davidic covenant. David understands that, and David's response is worship and praise. That's why when you read the Psalms, you read these words about David that are God-focused. This is why the people of God should be God-focused in all that God does, or all that he would use us, or all that he would make us. It needs to be focused on him, and not about us, or who we are, or look at how great I am. That, that we need to learn this from David. Therefore, you are great. Therefore, because God did all these things, therefore, you are great. Oh, Lord, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you. This is all in verse 22. And then you'll find this echoed over and over again in the Psalms. David puts the focus on God and his purposes and God's greatness. This is about God making a name for himself. This is why to read the Exodus account. If you read the Exodus account and come away thinking, my goodness, Moses is really great. That's totally missing the point. And the point is God is great and made a name for himself. God's fame is declared among the nations. This is one of the great lessons from the Bible that we learn from David. It is explicit in David's life and in his writings. It is about the greatness of God. Another thing we learn from David's character is his repentance. His repentance. Go, to, go again to chapter 12 where again you have his sin in chapter 11. You have it covered up. You have, him, you have him confronted in chapter 12. Incidentally, one of the fascinating things about this confrontation is again, 2 Samuel records uh, the history of David and what he's like. And David, friends, is a man of blood. He's a man of blood. By the time you get to 2 Samuel, there are two, there, I believe it's by this time, definitely in the book of 2 Samuel, there were two times when David has a man cut to pieces. And in every English translation, they neuter the language so they don't really, they don't put the, the real sentence in there because it's so graphic. Literally, the language is, this per, like it happens in chapter 1, the person who comes to David and brings him the news that Saul's dead, and this person lies and says that they killed Saul, they think they're bringing David good news, David has him cut to pieces. This is a, this is a, a serious man of blood that is not to be messed with. And then here you have, and knowing that, knowing that this man has the authority and uses his authority to have people cut to pieces, Nathan the prophet goes and confronts him. You are the man. There's some courage for you. You are the man. But look at David's response when he's in the wrong. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Chapter 12 and verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What an astounding statement of forgiveness. 
You have repentance, and we know, again, this repentance is real because you can read about it in Psalm 51. And if you want one of the best depictions of repentance in the Bible, you'd read Psalm 51, which is about David wrote a psalm about this experience. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. Now, the Lord forgives us of our sin. But as believers, we still bear the consequences of the sins we commit in this life. And that's what we see in David's case. David is a, is a great sinner, meaning his sins are spectacularly bad. But he's also a great repenter, meaning that his response to his sins is repentance. You see it here. You also see it in chapter 24, the last chapter of the book, another spectacular sin where he misuses his authority for the wrong reasons, but then he repents. We learn a lot about repentance from the example of David. When David is confronted, he humbly confesses that he's sinned. Having the power and the authority to have the man thrown out, put in jail, put in a dungeon or cut to pieces, he repents. Brings up the question for us, are we able to receive rebuke from others? Because we know we're sin sinners. And we probably, hopefully know, we have sins that we're probably not aware of that maybe other people can more clearly see in our life than we can see. So how do we respond if we're rebuked? Now imagine and remember who David is. David is one of the most capable men on the pages of Scripture. He's just, again, one of these people that is incredibly gifted. Gifted leader, gifted author, most importantly gifted by God being with him. But when he's confronted, his humility comes in and he recognizes truth when he's rebuked. Another, another I just think, key lesson from his life is how he responds to rebuke when it's legitimate. He had legitimately sinned, he was rebuked for it. So, if or when we're confronted for clear sin, how would we react? How would we react? Not only that, one of the things we learn from this book, again, chapters 11 through 20 just paint this graphic picture of David's consequences. Not only do we learn from his character, we learn from his consequences. That's what chapters 11 through 20 are about. And, and here are just some principles. Principle one, the serious consequences of sin. I mean, all those chapters 1 through 10 of these amazing things David did for God, those weren't erased, but they were terribly marred. Uh, so my, uh, I, had a, I had a professor that, that gave this example, and you might not like this, so take it or leave it, but it illustrates a point. Uh, so I have, a, I have a professor friend that I respect, and he has two boys. And uh, one of his boys, and you're probably going to hate this story. I probably shouldn't share this, but I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> I've already started, I can't get out now. But one of his boys built this Lego set and, uh, you know, spent a significant amount of time building this Lego set and uh, the dad comes home and just breaks it. Breaks it. And says to him, son, you see what you work so hard on can easily and quickly be destroyed. That's one of the lessons that David teaches us is what despite all your years of faithfulness, one serious sin or one error can, can mar it all. It doesn't take it away, 
but it can affect it. And, and the reality is, the principle is, there are serious consequences for sin. The sword will never depart from your house. And then it's just this horror show. Nine chapters. David's family is a utter tragedy after that. Another principle we learn from this is that our sins affect others. The sword shall never depart from your house. David's family is affected for the rest of his days. We don't sin in a vacuum, but our sins affect others. Now again, praise God, there's, there's forgiveness and there's redemption. And we'll get to that. And God does delight in taking broken circumstances and using them for good. And God does that. But there are still consequences to bear. So we would be wise to be reminded that we don't want to bear the consequences for our sins. So don't commit them. So when we're tempted to sin, this should be a protective to turn from it, to run from it, to flee from it. Because it affects others. There are serious consequences. Number three, that we're responsible for our sins. David does not blame, well, you know, it was my upbringing. You know, it was my environment. No, he takes responsibility for what he did. And we are responsible for our sins. The the blame is squarely put on David. David brings woes upon himself and the nation because of his sin. It's just inescapable. That's just the main theme in the book. When you set 2 Samuel in light of the, the rest of Scripture, one of the things you learn is the centrality, the the, the certainty of God's plans. The certainty of God's plans. And this this really begins coming out in chapter 7 with the Davidic covenant, where very clearly God has a plan for a coming king. But not only that, in these these dark chapters, chapters 11 through 20, like for instance, if, if you look at chapter 12, where Nathan confronts David, David repents. The child dies. What a tragedy. What an unspeakable tragedy. Right after the child dies, guess who's introduced? Solomon. That's what I'm saying. Even in in these dark chapters where David's bearing the consequences of sin, they are laced with grace and hope. And you get it, this, this horrible sin and confrontation, Solomon is introduced. This one that is going to be used by God to write many of the Proverbs, and to do much good, and to become the next king after David. Solomon is introduced. Chapter 24, again, the book ends weird. (laughs) It kind of is like the rest of the book. It it ends with a a, a kind of a a note on David's sin and the consequences of it. But so it kind of like leaves you hanging a bit. Uh, You read chapter 24, and you're like, "Why, why does the book end this way? Well, of course, it's not the end. The story continues. But, but you've got chapter 24, and, and David commits this sin, and he essentially buys this piece of land and offers sacrifices to God. Well, the piece of land that he buys in chapter 24 as a result of his sin eventually becomes the, the location of the temple. The location of the temple. This, this parcel of land becomes where the temple would be built by Solomon. So even there you see God's plan. And God's purpose is being worked out in the midst of sin. And despite sin, God will bring good from that. And he does it for all of us. Praise God. It's the promise of Romans 8.28 that we know that all things work together for good. 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to our purpose. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences for our sins, but the fact is that God uses us despite us. And God has good intentions, oftentimes uh, instructive intentions for our sins and teaches us hard lessons through them. We learn this in the certainty of God's good plans. There is hope to be found here. Let's finish with Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 shows us why 2 Samuel 7 is so important. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 32. Here is the coming of Jesus on the scene. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 32 Luke shows us that this is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Here is the one. Here is the king. Here is the one that's going to rule forever. Before he's even born, he's said to be the one who will fulfill the covenant with David. That's why it's so important you know what that is. You can't, you can't fully understand or rightly understand Jesus if you don't understand 2 Samuel 7. It's one of the amazing things of the Bible. It's like a chain. It all goes together. It's connected. And, and the more you understand the connections, you're strong, the stronger your faith will be because you'll recognize and see more clearly God at work. God's plan unfolding. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Before he's born, he's the greatest king. Before he's born, he's promised to rule over a kingdom. Again, doesn't this affect how we view Jesus Christ? The descendant of David, this great conqueror and victor of the Old Testament. From him comes this perfect king whose kingdom there will be no end. David's kingdom is going to have terrible flaws. And his son is going to ruin it to a certain extent. But this kingdom will not be ruined. It will continue to exist forever. Ruled by a perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one we've been awaiting for. You read the Old Again, 2 Samuel leaves you longing. Man, David is, the Lord is with him, but wow, he's messed up. Friends, this is why we need the Lord Jesus Christ, just like all of us. My goodness, I'm messed up. I bear the consequences of my sins. That's terrible. It's frustrating. But praise God, there's Jesus. And in his kingdom, he forgives us of our sins. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that you'd use this book of 2 Samuel to stir us to faithfulness, to help us love your word, to help us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to help us love one another. I pray that you would embed the lessons of this book deep in our soul, God, that we would recognize that you're the reason for success and blessing. And God, that there are serious consequences for our sins. So God, we'd be greatly encouraged by your work in and through us. And God, we'd be seriously and severely warned by the grievous consequences that come upon your servants because of our sins. So God, I just pray that would keep us from sin. And Lord, that we would rejoice in your plan to bring Christ into the world that he is the ruler of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that you prophesied here in 2 Samuel 7. Thank you for the clarity of your word and its power. Help us now to marvel at Christ and worship him in spirit and in truth. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.
the good news of the gospel is what God did through Jesus and the way God builds this kingdom is Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, that we as sinners are unfit to be in the kingdom of God because the king is holy and righteous and demands perfection. So the, good, the amazing news is God did something about that by sending Jesus to die in our place so that we could stand before the throne of God, so that we could be brought into his kingdom, that we could be made righteous and made holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins. He was raised powerfully from the dead to demonstrate he is this eternal king. And we trust in him, friends, he's worthy of worship. So let's worship him. We call you to trust Jesus, to depend on him. The, the good news is by depending on Jesus, he's the one who, he'll forgive you of your sins and bring you to God. We should be repentant of our sins like David was. And again, the good news is though our sins are red like crimson, he'll make them white as snow. But through Jesus Christ, our sins God will put away. That's what Nathan said God did for David's sin. The Lord has put away your sin. You don't bear it anymore. God forgives it and he does it through Christ.